there's that classic quote of if um, there's no dancing in the revolution, then I don't want to join. Oh, I think I put to that quote, but something along those lines. That's an organiser from the People's Blockade in Newcastle at the weekend, a joyous Alexa Stewart. Yes, this is the latest episode of Climate Conversations, and I'm your host, Robert McLean. It's so great to have you along. This podcast is assembled here in Shepparton, in northern Victoria, Australia, on the lands of the Yorta Yorta people. Yes, the stolen lands of the Yorta Yorta people. I pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Let's listen now as I talk with an almost ecstatic Alexa Stewart. How did the uh, People's Blockade go, Alexa? Yeah, the People's Blockade was pretty incredible. We had um, 3,000 people join us on the beach and on the water over the weekend. We um, blockaded the Newcastle coal port for 32 hours, um, stopping about 10 coal ships and half a million tonnes of coal. Um, 109 people were arrested for civil disobedience, which made it um, officially the largest civil disobedience for climate in Australia's history. Um, And, yeah, we just got massive amounts of international media. Yes, I I saw a little bit, well, I saw a lot on the television. Actually, I saw some Mm. on the drum. They talked about it on the drum on the the ABC. Yeah. um, So they said that that in itself made it successful because they were talking about you. Yeah, absolutely. We got um, so much media, like all of the um, major uh, TV on Saturday and Sunday and most of them again on Monday um, and yeah just discussions on the drum and uh, mentioned on Q&A and on BBC News and all of that and I think the other really impressive part that I saw was how mostly pretty positive the um, response was all of the stories were really um, yeah positive I think that was yeah, so we were so happy to see that. So what was the reaction like in Newcastle itself, do you know? Um, yeah, I think, I don't know the whole community's response, but there was definitely we received like so much positive feedback. Um, I think people were, yeah, really excited to see such a big and fun event happen in Newcastle. We got... Um, like we just saturated Newcastle media, three front pages of the Newcastle Herald in a row. Um, and, yeah, it was mostly pretty positive. So were you personally involved with any of the paddle outs? Were, like were you actually there or were you organising it? So I was, yeah, organising it and I was on the beach for a lot of time. Unfortunately, I didn't make it out uh, on a kayak because I was just too busy the whole weekend because disappointed about but um yeah I was doing a lot of the media and program and and organizing but I was definitely on site the whole weekend. So I guess your organization would consider it a success wouldn't you? Absolutely yeah all of all of the things that we set out to achieve we did and I think it's just really we're really going to see this movement grow um a lot at, off the back of this um we grew as we were creating it through the number of people that we recruited and and um you know who volunteered with us and um just after this the success of the event i think means that there's so many people who are keen to get more involved so how big is rising tide itself like how many members have you got oh 
you know, it's um, hard to tell. We're, we're a yeah. grassroots movement. Yeah. Um, yeah. We have about 1,400 people taken our pledge, which um, is a commitment to join our civil resistance movement. Um, but we've got about, I would say our best guess is kind of uh, maybe 4,000 members or so. But, yeah, we've just seen our grass just like growing um exponentially over the last week it's basically vertical at the moment (laughs) what's next for rising time um a couple of things are underway that we're going to be doing during cop 28 um and then we're kicking off the year with some training that we're just starting to plan and then throughout the year there'll be um a lot of big and small events and will culminate with another blockade of Newcastle um, at the end of next year, which we'll have, we're aiming for 10 days uh, with 10,000 people. So, yeah, <laughs> we're, we're getting ready for that. It coincides with COP28. So was that planned or was that just a coincidence? No, it was definitely planned. It's, it's the time of year when climate is in the news and when Australia comes under intense international scrutiny. It's the time that we wanted to really put pressure on the Australian government to, um, yes, yeah, step up and to improve their climate policies because at this rate we're just an uh, international embarrassment. So do you think the Australian government is listening to anything you're saying or doing? Or Yeah, we, we, there was a question asked in question time about it and um, Chris Bowen um responded to us as did the New South Wales Premier Chris Minns, um, which we were pleased to see, but both of them obviously didn't approve of the protests and I think that's no surprise because they don't like coming under scrutiny for their climate policies. Yeah, I saw Chris Min on the I heard him on the radio, I think, saying that how important the coal experts ex- exports were to uh, New South Wales, but yeah, and he talked about the importance of, of tax on coal export profits, which we um, that is we that is exactly what we're calling for. We're calling for a seventy five percent tax on these profits to fund the transition. So we thought that was an incredibly ironic um, comment from Chris Mins, um, <laughs> yeah. because it's like, yes, we agree with you. Tax them, <laughs> please. Yeah, it's it's pretty strange, isn't it? Yeah. Alexa, is there something else you'd like to say about the weekend or about the event itself? Oh, no, I, I guess I think it just showed the strength of, um, you know, mass numbers of people um, taking really strong action in both a powerful and direct way, but also just having a lot of fun. We, mm. we had music all weekend, we were dancing, we were paddling out on the water drinking tea and pancakes and I think that that um element of fun was really important so I think this is what this is what the movement needs at the moment it needs more mass actions like these um and and that's definitely what Rising Tide intends to keep doing it needs fun it needs people to to laugh and have a good time, yeah. There's that classic quote of, if um, there's no dancing in the revolution, then I don't want to join. <laughs> oh, I think I butchered that quote, but something along those lines. <laughs> if there's no dancing in the revolution, I don't want to join. So you like that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
yeah, yeah. We got to dance. <laughs> okay, Alexa. Thanks for that. I appreciate the fact that you talk to me, talk with me. So, thank you so much. Have a good one. You too. Bye. Yes, if there's no dancing in this revolution, I just don't want to join. I just love that. You'll find a link to Rising Tide in the show notes. And Rising Tide was the organisation behind the weekend protests at the Newcastle Coal Port. Next we have a story from The Monthly and it's by Rachel Withers. It has the headline, Spin of a Mission. The kicker headline says, What is the point of a ministerial climate update that doesn't mention our missions are still rising? It's a weird day when the Shadow Minister for Climate Energy, Ted O'Brien, starts making some sense. Rising to speak after Climate Change Minister Chris Bowen delivered the second annual climate change statement in the House, O'Brien noted that Bowen hadn't actually mentioned in his remarks whether our emissions had gone up or down in the past year. They rose 0.8% in the year to June. Experts and journalists quickly pointed out, with Australia still not on track to meet its 2030 target. As O'Brien noted, Bowen had withheld the official figures until only a few hours prior to his speech. In fact, for most people, they weren't available until the minister started speaking, meaning analysts were rushing to skim the report. O'Brien's intentions weren't pure. His party has little interest in seeing emissions go down or understanding why they aren't. And it wasn't long before he started ranting about Labor's promise to bring power prices down. But he was right to question the accountability and transparency of a process that involves the minister proselytising about all his great plans and, and talking up the need to do more, while failing to explain where things are actually at. To quote O'Brien, I'm afraid the minister is making a mockery of it. Now we have a story from The Guardian, and it's by health editor Andrew Gregory. The headline for the story is, Air pollution from fossil fuels kills 5 million people a year. The story begins, Air pollution from fossil fuels is killing 5 million people worldwide every year, a death toll much higher than previously estimated, according to the largest study of its kind. The stark figures, published on the eve of the COP28 climate summit in Dubai, will increase pressure on the world leaders to take action. Among the decisions they must make at the UN conference will be whether to agree, for the first time, to gradually phase out fossil fuels. Research has shown that switching from fossil fuels to clean, renewable energy sources would save many lives from air pollution and help combat global heating. However, until now, mortality estimates have varied widely. Next we have the audio from a story in the Melbourne Age that has the headline, Severe Drought Turns to Severe Floods Killing Hundreds in East Africa. Nairobi, severe flooding caused by the El Nino weather phenomenon has killed 120 people in Kenya, while people in almost 90,000 households have been forced to leave their homes, the government said. The latest estimated death toll has doubled as heavy seasonal rains following the worst drought in four decades have submerged towns and villages across East Africa, rendering hundreds of thousands of people homeless. Thousands of homes have been washed away or are marooned, while farmland has been submerged and tens of thousands of livestock drowned, aid agencies said. In neighbouring Somalia floods have killed at least 96 people and displaced 700,000, a disaster management official said. In Ethiopia, at least 44 people have been killed. All 47 counties were affected, but four in the east were hit harder, 
Tana River, Garissa, Waja and Mandera, are most severely affected, Interior Minister Raymond Amolo said. All major dams are being monitored but Kayambia has a meter remaining to overflow, Amolo said in a statement, referring to the Kayambia hydroelectric power station in Tana River. We call on those downstream to move to higher ground even as government enhances power generation to mitigate the challenge. In Garissa town, thousands of people have been displaced after their homes were swept away. All roads are destroyed. I don't even know where people will go, Garissa resident Joel Nui said. Residents living by the Tana River, Kenya's largest, have been left homeless and hungry after it burst its banks. Marion Ware, a widow and mother of five, escaped with her children after her home was carried away. She constructed a makeshift shelter on higher ground. I had no one to help me, my husband died a long time ago, she said. I was struggling to get my children to safety. When I went back, everything was gone. President William Ruto said the floods and landslides had been worsened by El Niño. He activated a national disaster operation center on Sunday but fell short of declaring the floods a national emergency. His spokesperson, Hussein Mohammed, noted, disease outbreaks, destruction of infrastructure and property as well as prolonged power outages, across Kenya and the region. He said the emergency status could change, if things get out of hand, if things get worse. The Kenya Meteorological Department forecasts that heavy rainfall will continue into the new year. Climate change is causing more intense and more frequent extreme weather events, according to scientists. In response, African leaders have proposed new global taxes and changes to international financial institutions to help fund climate change action. Next we have the audio from another story in the Melbourne Age with the headline, Major Flood Risk as Heavy Rain Hammers Parts of Victoria. Emergency services have warned communities across the state to prepare for riverine and flash flooding as heavy rain and strong winds sweep across Victoria. Gippsland and the Surf Coast are among the areas at risk of flooding with the Bureau of Meteorology forecasting rainfall as high as 200 mm in some parts of the state. Flooding hit Swan Hill in the state's north on Wednesday after a deluge of rain, while Bureau figures revealed Ultima, about 30 km southwest of Swan Hill, experienced Victoria's highest total of 90.2 mm in the 24 hours to 9 a.m. on Wednesday. The Bureau's senior meteorologist Kevin Parkin said rainfall was expected to continue throughout Wednesday night and into Thursday. He said rainfall totals could reach 200 mm in the Otways and Gippsland. Unfortunately, where we do see intense rainfall, particularly through the Gippsland catchments, it will result in flooding, he said. Parkin said many rivers would have minor or moderate flooding, but that could hit major flood levels depending on rainfall. Flights departing Melbourne Airport experienced hour-long delays on average due to the weather, leading to long queues of planes on the tarmac as only one runway was operating on Wednesday afternoon. Parkin said southeasterly winds reaching up to 90 km per hour had brought trees down on roads and damaged vegetation. Be prepared over the next 24 to 48 hours for the heavy rain to lead to flash flooding, but also for the riverine flood risk as well, he said on Wednesday afternoon. Parts of Swan Hill were flooded on Wednesday after the Murray River town was hit with 75.8 mm of rain in the 6 hours to 7 a.m., forcing a primary school and the town's RSL to close. Due to the heavy rain, the front and many other parts of the school grounds are currently flooded and many connecting roads into the school, St. Mary's Primary School in Swan Hill posted to its Facebook page. For safety reasons, the school will be closed this morning.
The state emergency service received more than 300 requests for assistance by Wednesday afternoon, including about 30 in Swan Hill. Says Chief Operations Officer Tim Weebush said creeks, streams and rivers were rising on the surf coast on Wednesday. There was also a risk of damaging winds on the surf coast and Dandenong ranges. But Weebush said Gippsland was the focus of riverine flooding. The Genoa, Can, Snowy, Bem, Tambo, Mitchell and Avo rivers could all have higher levels than the October floods last year. Weebush warned communities around the Traralgon Creek to prepare for moderate to major flood levels. Some homes in Traralgon were severely damaged after flooding in the Gippsland town in 2021. There is definitely a risk of inundation of properties in low-lying areas that will start with the likes of caravan parks, Weebush said. But if we do see those higher rain totals, we will see the potential for homes in the most low-lying areas impacted by flooding. He said local and major roads in Gippsland may be cut off. The rain in Gippsland is expected to continue into Friday and possibly Saturday. Warmer weather will return to Melbourne on Monday and Tuesday with a top of 28 degrees predicted. Meanwhile, two people have been rescued from a car swept up in floodwaters and others from a home on the New South Wales south coast. Nationally, the temperature outlook for Australia this spring and summer is for above average temperatures, and the strong possibility of a drying El Nino climate driver. Panelists on tonight's Australian Broadcasting Corporation TV program The Drum, and tonight being Thursday, November 30, talked about COP28 and the climate crisis. Let's have a listen now to that conversation. Hello, welcome to The Drum. I'm Julia Baird. Coming up, the government hopeful of hitting emissions targets as global climate change talks kick off. Joining me on the panel, content creator, writer and actor Kath Ebbs is back. Hello. Hello. <laughs> Former US Democrat staff and senior fellow at the United States Study Centre, Bruce Wolpe. Good to see you. Thank you. In Melbourne, International Director at the Smart Energy Council, about to fly off to COPS. COP, I should say, not COPS, that sounds like a, a 1980s TV show. Richie Mertzian, how are you? Good, thank you. And in Perth, emergency physician and author Michelle Johnson makes her d debut. Hello, Michelle. Hello. And you can join us online using the hashtag The Drum, and we are also live streaming on Facebook. Now, first tonight, as we approach the end of a year already declared the hottest on record, a grim warning from Canberra today on the worsening impacts of climate change. In his annual update to Parliament, Climate Change Minister Chris Bowen said runaway global heating was straining energy networks and posing existential national security risks to Australia and our Pacific neighbours. Extreme weather events caused by climate change place increased strain on Australia's energy networks and this fragility could be used by hostile actors. Dealing with the climate extremes is likely to place additional stress on national coordination arrangements and domestic crisis management agencies stretching Australia's emergency capabilities that deploy domestically and internationally. The currently identified national security threats from climate change already present serious risks to Australia and the region, but they will become more severe and more frequent as further warming targets are exceeded. Australia's greenhouse gas emissions actually rose in the 12 months to June, but Chris Bowen said the projections have improved and we're, quote, within striking distance of the government's target 42% cut by 2030. Last week, the government announced a big boost to renewable energy subsidies to lift the share of renewables from a third 
currently to above 80% within seven years. It comes as the annual United Nations Climate Conference kicks off in Dubai amid reports an Emirati politician has been using the event to sign oil deals with other governments. Philip Curry is political editor at the Australian Financial Review. Happy to say he joins us now from Canberra. Good to see you, Phil. Yeah, hi, Julia. So we have Chris Bowen saying that projections are within striking distance, mm. but emissions have gone up in the last 12 years. How, 12, well, 12 years, but also 12 months. How do we reconcile yeah. this? Well, the, they're, they're still largely on track to meet their target of a 43% a reduction in emissions over 2005 levels by 2030. Um, it was, the, the minister announced today that they hit 42% based on current settings. Um, now, a large part of that, Julia, was the announcement last week that the government would underwrite an enormous amount of uh, renewable energy infrastructure, uh, you know, building that capacity from 6 gigawatts to 32 gigawatts. Um, it was interesting today, uh, Chris Bowen also announced that they weren't they weren't going to sort of meet that 20 they weren't going to do a recommendation from the climate council to to sort of outlaw petrol engines in 2040 and to mandate um houses you know move away from gas uh, hmm. which are two two recommendations and that's that's reflecting a sensitivity being seen in other countries where you risk a backlash against this, um, especially with cost of living concerns. Mm. We saw the British government recently push back their date uh, you know, on, on the combustion engines uh, by five years and start to walk back some of these deadlines because people are just feeling a bit pressured at the moment. So it explains why they did what they did last week on renewable energy. That's mm. sort of a catch-all now for a lot of... Uh, uh, a lot of other actions they could be doing, and um, but Bowen said today we should hit 42 uh, by 2030, which is close to 43, and I'm sure by next year that will probably change again. But um, it's not bad. It's, you know, I'm sure Richie won't be pleased, but it, it's it's better than nothing. He'll take that to cop uh, this next week. Richie, what is your assessment then? If the, we hit, this is a report card, basically the government is moving in the right direction. The 42 percent emission reduction that we are on track to hit is much better than the 26% we had under the previous government. Is it in line with the science? No. Should it be more? Yes. But really it's moving in the right direction. And as Phil mentioned, a big part of that is electricity. That's still the majority of uh, the largest portion of greenhouse gas emissions for Australia. And the question is how do we ramp up that renewable so that it replaces those antiquated coal clunkers that we have on the grid? One part is those large-scale renewable projects, and it's great to see a new big investment that's going to go there. The second part, though, is consumer energy. It's rooftop solar, it's batteries at homes, it's EVs in the driveway, and that still needs a bit more work. So how do we empower people to actually take up the renewable solutions, which also has the benefit of reducing their uh, household costs? Can you describe how the capacity investment scheme works? Because it's a little bit complicated, isn't it? But ultimately, it's a, you know, it will invest more investment in wind and solar. That's right. So it, the Australian government is actually taking a position in partnership with state governments and they'll negotiate those deals exactly to actually buy the renewable energy that, that they're looking for. So that provides certainty, investment certainty, that, that these large-scale projects will find buyers on the other end of it. We've seen this work in the ACT, we've seen this work in Victoria. We're seeing basically a more interventionist position because we're not getting the kind of renewable energy we need at the scale and speed in order to hit that target of 82% renewables by 2030. Look, it's a good move and it's basically going to make up for the slowdown in renewables. We can't make the transition unless we put on the right energy, the cleaner energy, and fortunately it's also the cheaper energy. 
Now, Phil, do you, are you, do you basically see the government as confident that they are going to be moving towards those goals? Because you've identified, you know, the things that they won't do that aren't mm. politically pa palatable. Look, that's their stated aim, Julia, but even, even with the renewable energy surge, you know, we're seeing problems with that, you know, with all the poles and wires that have to be built. We're seeing resistance to that from landholders. Yeah, there's an enormous amount of sort of, uh, you know, grid that has to be built. Uh, to, to connect all these things. And I was, I was reading another story today about these farmers uh, fighting Osnet in Victoria. We've got the con controversy with the wind farms off the New South Wales coast and, and another one planned off the South Australian coast, you know, what that's going to do to whale migrations and stuff like that. So there's a catch with all of this. You know, there's no sort of easy solution in, in sort of political terms. And what the renewable surge has managed to do is sort of unite, you know, environmentalists and the right, uh, in some cases, in opposition against all this. So... Yes, you can get rid of coal and, and, and so forth but and, and build lots of renewables, but you'd need the infrastructure to transmit that around the country. And that, that does add to the cost of it. I mean, Richie may correct me here, but re renewable energy is cheap to generate, but by the time you bung on the price of building all the infrastructure, that gets passed on to your power bill. It may not be as cheap as you have hoped. So, mm. But that's the course the government has chosen to take. They've set themselves that 82% target of renewable energy by 2030. It's a noble target. It... It, it sort of deals us in, in in these sort of global forums, and as Anthony Albanese said, was basically our entry ticket back into a lot of these um these these formats in the world. But uh, you know, as as always, it'd be nice if others in the world you know were as committed as we were. And I've been to a lot of these summits, not COPs, but G20s and others in recent years. And I can tell you, the Russians, the Chinese, and the Indians, they're the ones probably doing more damage to the planet than anyone other than the US, and they're just mm. not interested. Mm. So it's um. You know, it's good we're doing our part, but it'd be nice if others did as well. I want to but it'd make to... this easier to sell. Yeah. Right. I want to return yeah. to cops in a moment. But, um, <laughs> Kath, if we can speak about what those outside the major parties are doing. We do have uh, David Pocock who's introduced an independent, a private member's bill in which he says that he wants the welfare, the future of young people to be considered any time the government's going to be making decisions that could see greenhouse gas emissions increase. I understand that's gone to a Senate committee, they're gathering signatures, they've got about 10,000 signatures so far. Do you see that as, as worthwhile? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's worthwhile. Um, I think it's kind of laughable that that has to happen. I mean, young people are the ones that are going to be left with the problem, which is why a lot of the time they're the ones screaming the loudest. Um, I just think the whole thing, when I look at it, the fact that, you know, we're constantly intellectualising this and talking about it and having conferences, like, mm. um, I can't remember if it was said in the clip, but kind of labelling this as, like, a, th a threat, like a, like a kind of being more hyperbolic in language and people being like, oh, is that a good way to put it? Yeah. Like, we don't... We won't have anything if we don't have the, the planet mm. um, and it goes to a point of no return, like, we don't... There's no, like, there's no talks to be had. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I think stuff like that is worthwhile. I think young people are the ones that are going to be the most affected um, and left with the problem, but it's not young people in the room having these discussions, which is why it's really, inf like, frustrating um, because people that are of a certain age it's not really going to be their problem. So they can kind of talk about money and economics and what do we do and maybe we hit this target, but at the end of the day, they don't care enough because they're not the ones that are going to be left with the problem. We are. So we should be the ones in the room, not calling the shots, but having a say in the call of the shots because we're the ones that are going to be the most affected by this 
issue, to put it lightly. Mm. <laughs> it's more than an issue. Um, it, yeah, it gets to the sense of urgency. Yeah, it like, is, like, though. Yeah. Like, the, 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 the fact that we're even having this debate, I'm like, this is such a sense of urgency to the point of, of no return if we don't hurry along. Um, and I know a lot of young people and just people in general are feeling increasingly frustrated, again, to put it lightly, mm. at... The fact that we're even talking about this, debating about this, having conferences, intellectualising it. Obviously, I don't know the ins and outs of of certain stats and, um, you know, even economics and the costs and all that kind of stuff. I'm not going to act like an expert. Um, I am a little bit ignorant in that department, but I'm not ignorant on the fact that this is a global crisis. And, again, I actually said it last time I was on the show, we saw during a global pandemic that when leaders put their minds to something, they can get it done. Mm. Um, and I want to see that same level of energy um, to other issues, and in this case, climate change, because mm. it's coming for us and uh, it is, it's impending doom we're if we playing, don't do something. Like we're playing um, chicken with an enormous Mack truck kind yeah, of situation. Yeah, and young people are the ones that are going to be left. Like a lot of young people, they did a survey recently, young people aren't having kids and are factoring, like a biggest reason for that is that they don't want to bring them into a world given what we're seeing statistically because we don't think it's fair to put that burden, that weight that's been put on us to our future generations. So a lot of people are just not having kids until they see some actual action. And if, there's, if they're not, then they go, nah. Won't do it. Yeah. And Michelle Johnston, um, the Royal Australian College of Practitioners came out in support uh, today of uh, David Pocock's legislation. You have been uh, rallying as well. You're rallying, I think, tomorrow about the WA Climate Bill on behalf of uh, Doctors for the Environment Australia, the WA chapter. Tell us why this is something doctors are getting involved in. Yes, thanks, Julia. And I like, I like the term urgency that, that's been brought up. Why? Why doctors? People will accuse us of stepping out of our lane, um, but I would counter that like the health impacts of the climate crisis are undeniable. And I work in an emergency department, which is kind of the barometer of society, of communities, and we are seeing already significant impact on increasing heat events. So it's not just that's heat waves, uh, droughts, storms, bushfires, um, uh, all of those things are impacting, but particularly heat. And seeing it firsthand, even on the weekend, you'll be aware that Perth had an unprecedented heat event for November. Uh, and I was on seeing what we do see during heat events, which is the homeless coming in with burns on their feet and their arms, um, elderly patients who have become much more unwell with their chronic diseases because of the heat, more dehydration, problems with cardiovascular systems, heart attacks, etc. A lot of the things also very difficult to measure, the unmeasurables of, of this inexorable uh, um, change in climate and change in heat. So it is our lane. It's... Uh, we. We believe that uh, you know, health. This is a health issue um, as much as an environmental biodiversity issue, and you know, human human rights. Health health is a human right. So we are particularly concerned as the Doctors of Environment um, for Australia. Uh, interesting talking about the the great the positive steps that have been taken by Australia to reduce emissions, but at the same time, you know, the state where I'm from, uh, in our uh, latest climate bill, which has been tabled this week in Parliament, 
includes us being able to open up the Barrup Hub gas expansion, which is somewhere between four to six billion tonnes of carbon into the atmosphere, which is only going to make things worse. The, the argument for it is it's going to make things better in the sh uh, for economically in the short term, um, which will have knock-on effects, but we don't have a short term. The short term is, you know, we're already way exceeded the 1.5 degrees, which we thought was going to be the ceiling. We're, we're on target to hit 2.7 and it's it's unlivable for the planet. As, as Kath said, you know, it's the young people that are going to suffer. And we see we see the, those effects on, on the vulnerable, the marginalised, the disenfranchised, who have a disproportionate uh, um, the, the disproportionate outcome from from all of these heat events. So it, it's our job to to shout, to be to, to tell people this is what's happening in the here and now, uh, and we need it to be a rapid phase out of of fossil fuels rather than this this increase. Um, you know, and that's our hope, I guess, from COP28 that there will be some international collaboration. There will be transparency. We won't be health washing or green washing to say we are we you know we're we're trading off carbon uh, in the in the short term for a, you know a greater sort of longer term future because we don't have that time. Our patients don't have that time. So yeah, so it is, it, you know, I don't want to be rallying on the steps of parliament. You know, I'm, I get in trouble for these sorts of things, but I don't feel I have a choice because I have a commitment to the health of my patients and the health of the community. Mm. What are your hopes for, for this? For uh, well, my hopes are that people keep looking at cities in India and say that isn't what we want. And I, I do think there was a political consensus formed in the bushfire crisis of 2019, 2020, mm. when people realized that it was a syllogism and it was connected. Global warming, bushfires, devastation, smoke, fix it. Mm. And so I do think there is a consensus to proceed. But unfortunately, the most powerful and efficient way to do it is using market forces. And that means price on carbon. I worked with the Democrats in Congress on it. I worked in Prime Minister Gillard's office. But it's politically invidious. And, and that could not stick. So the program that uh, the, this government has, that Joe Biden has in America, is based on um, regulation incentive subsidies, a very heavy, and it will be effective, but it's slower, clunkier, few more distortions, but it does put us on the road. The question is how fast can we get there? Mm -hmm. So we have to keep redoubling our commitment at regular intervals so that the, the kids are protected and that the and health workers are protected and people understand what's going on. Um, Phil, what do you think uh, Chris Bowen's role and responsibility will, will be at this summit? Um, well, a couple of things. I mean, I, I to sell to the rest of the world and impress upon all the others over there that we're doing our bit. You remember I went to COP26, I think it was, in Glasgow with Scott Morrison and he got in all sorts of trouble. Remember, he had to wrangle the, the Liberal Party towards, um, well, the coalition towards the 50, uh, sorry, net zero by 2050 and it was pretty unconvincing by the nationals and others, but you need to have something in your kit bag when you turn up at these things to say, you know, we're, we're trying our best and doing our share of the heavy listing, lifting. So that's, that's sort of pretty principally uh, Bowen's aim to make sure we're not a pariah, but also, Julie, we're aiming to host the COP ourselves, I think either next year or the year after. So um, to do that, your bona fides have to be fairly solid. So, mm. um, you know, we're gonna, we wanna host one here in Australia in, in conjunction with the Pacific Islands. Now that's got a national security element to it as much as it has a sort of an environmental element to it, an economic element to it. Mm. Um, and so he, would, he will be working uh, sort of vigorously behind the scenes lobbying for that and to have any clout, you've got to be able to say, you know, we're, 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 doing, we're doing our share. Mm. Richie, you're heading off, off there yourself. What, what, are your, what are your hopes? 
This COP is the first time that there's been a global stock take since the Paris Agreement in 2015 to see if we're on track and no surprise we're not. And so there's numerous recommendations for how we improve that. A new set of targets need to come forward, a big focus on ambition, a big focus on the money so that you can actually assist those less wealthy countries to make action, a big focus on adaptation, how you deal with those unavoidable impacts, and then also on the right kinds of energy. There'll be a push for tripling renewable energy capacity by 2030 globally. How do we make sure that not just developed countries, but developing countries can also benefit from cleaner, cheaper energy? And how can developed countries like Australia support that? And as Phil mentioned, finally, Australia does have a bid in to host a COP in 2026. This would be COP 31 and to do so in partnership with the Pacific. This is the first time in 30 years that Australia's ever put its hand up to do this. And I think that's because Australia is trying to step up and actually be a bit more of a leader rather than a laggard on the climate change space. We've been known for too long as a fossil fuel exporter. And now it's time that we actually shift our thinking. We build in Australia that can actually deliver clean energy solutions at home and abroad and we actually take that to the world and we do so in solidarity with our neighbours who are facing that existential threat. Mm. Phil Corey, really appreciate your analysis this evening. Thanks for joining us. Pleasure, Julia. Phil Corey is the AFR's political editor. COP28 and the climate crisis was front and centre in tonight's 7.30 report on the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, where the host Sarah Ferguson talked with Australia's Climate Change and Energy Minister, Chris Bowen. Let's have a listen now to that conversation. I should add that tonight is Thursday, November 30. Tomorrow, King Charles will give the opening address at the UN's annual climate summit in the United Arab Emirates. Amidst a complicated agenda, for many, the measure of the summit's success will come down to a single issue, whether there is global agreement to phase out fossil fuels. In a moment, I'll speak to the Minister for Climate Change and Energy, Chris Bowen. But first, Jason Arm and Emily Ackew preview the summit. Hotter, wilder, and more extreme. Years of climate warnings are coming to fruition. The era of global warming has ended. The era of global boiling has arrived. It is what we decide now that will define the rest of humanity's future. If we don't, it will be a death sentence. Twenty twenty-three, scientists say, is set to be the warmest year on record. What is critically urgent is action by all countries to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions very, very quickly. For the 28th time, world leaders are gathering for the UN's annual climate talks this year in Dubai in the United Arab Emirates. Their key ambition to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. The world is nowhere near meeting the target. Currently, with all the current commitments, the world is heading at three degrees of global warming, not limiting global warming to one and a half degrees. And now, more than ever, 
While the summit's president-designate, Sultan Al-Jaber, talks the talk. We need to show that the international community can deliver and send a clear signal that keeps 1.5 within reach. His role as the head of the UAE's national oil company, ADNOC, has raised questions over a conflict of interest. ADNOC is expanding its oil and gas production and investing in carbon capture and other forms of abatement. But scientists have warned carbon capture technology is expensive and unproven at scale. Leaked documents this week revealed possible plans for the Sultan to use the summit to strike oil and gas deals with other countries. These allegations are false, not true, incorrect and not accurate. And it's an attempt to undermine the work of the COP28 presidency. Sultan Al-Jaber is also chair of the UAE's renewable energy company, which it says has committed about 30 billion US dollars into green energy projects globally. I think he's under a major credibility cloud right now. I don't think he can survive uh, the COP with the increasing political scrutiny on his activities without making a major step away from the interests of his oil and gas company. This year's summit will test how far countries have gone to cut emissions in line with the Paris Agreement. Australia says it's now within striking distance of its target of a 43% reduction in emissions by 2030. With policies we've announced and we are in the process of implementing, Australia's emissions are now projected to be 42% below 2005 levels in 2030. What Bowen is releasing is projections assuming that all the commitments that have been put by the government are honoured and met in all sectors, in industry, in transport. Scientists are also critical of countries which continue to allow new fossil fuel projects, including Australia. It is completely the wrong thing to do. It's going in the wrong direction. It's going to cook the planet unless we stop it. Coal, come off it. Don't fund Origins profits. Coal is fueling the climate crisis. The plight of developing countries will again be a focus. Last year's summit in Egypt agreed to set up a special loss and damage fund to help developing countries deal with the immediate costs of climate disasters. Former British Prime Minister Gordon Brown and other former world leaders have signed a letter pushing for $25 billion in levies on oil-producing countries to pay for it. Bill Hare expects this summit may yield results. Already around $200 million has been pledged and I expect by the end of the COP we'll get towards $500 million. So that would be a very positive story. And he's optimistic that there's still time to act. If we can get emissions reduced fast enough, um, then one and a half degree limit is still achievable. That means that we could limit warming to very close to one and a half degrees and within a few decades have warming declining. Right now, I feel fear that if we don't actually get our act together and get emissions down uh, fast enough, then we are locking the world into a, a hellish future. As we just saw the, today, the Minister for Climate Change and Energy, Chris Bowen, delivered his second annual climate change statement to the Parliament. 
And as we just mentioned, the government says it's in striking distance of its target to reduce emissions by 43 percent by 2030. This is despite the Climate Change Authority saying greenhouse gas emissions had risen in the 12 months to June. I spoke to Chris Bowen earlier. Chris Bowen, welcome to 7.30. My pleasure, Sarah. Now, while emissions are still rising in Australia, we're also close to reaching the emissions target that you legislated last year. What, have, what are the biggest contributions to that? Well, our policy to get to 82% renewable uh, energy in our grid, which is important for emissions and reliability of our grid going forward. Also, our safeguards reforms, bringing down emissions from our big industries. Look, and across the board, Sarah, our comprehensive plan. So it's pleasing. I'm pleased. Emissions reduction was scheduled to be 30% by 2030 when we came to office. The figures I'm released today show we're on track for 42. So we're edging towards our 43% target. But we've got a lot more to do, Sarah. There's 72 months now to 2030. That is not long for the massive shift in economic activity that we need to see for Australia to play its role and also to ensure a reliable energy system as part of that transition. I just want to go to a couple of the details. As I just mentioned, emissions are still rising. They're led, as I understand, by pollution from cars, utes and SUVs. So why have you rejected the recommendations of the Climate Change Authority for fuel efficiency standards? Well, that's not right that we've rejected uh, a recommendation to have a fuel efficiency standard. In fact, we will have a fuel efficiency standard and, and we are delivering one and we'll have more to say about the details of that uh, in the near future. But uh, there was a specific recommendation about design. We have a different way. You're right, Sarah, transport emissions are one of the factors that we're dealing with, particularly post-pandemic, as, you, as you'd expect. People stopped moving around during the pandemic. People are now moving around, and that's reflected in the emissions figures, both land transport and aviation in particular. That's why we're developing a transport sector plan, and that's why we will have fuel efficiency standards. You questioned the way I framed that particular question to you, but it does mean that we're part of a club that no-one wants to be in, which is just us and Russia with no fuel efficiency standards. Because the previous government didn't do it. Uh, they, you know, Josh Frydenberg had a policy of introducing fuel efficiency standards which lasted two hours before he got rolled by the right wing of his party and they never got around to doing it after that. And it's that point you made about Russia, Sarah, is 100% correct. It's a point I've made myself on many occasions. It is not a club we want to be in. Uh, Australia and Russia are the only major economies without fuel efficiency standards. The United States has had them since the 1970s. And I think, I think our viewers would understand perhaps that Australia's um, fuel uh, fleet, our car fleet, would be uh, less fuel efficient than, say, Europe's, but it's also less fuel efficient than the United States. I mean, our, our cars are 20% less efficient than the big fleet of the United States. You've also decided not to move ahead with a, a recommended phase-out for existing gas connections. Now, have you balked at this because these are measures that will hurt people already suffering cost-of-living pressures? Well, I'd make two points. The recommendation was to have a coordinated national plan on phasing out gas from homes, both new and existing. We have rejected that for two reasons, really. Uh, one, it's a state-based policy. You know, um, the number of homes connected to gas in Tasmania is around 5% and is around 76% in Victoria. So it's quite right that the response is state-based because it varies so much from state to state and each state's going to have their own way of dealing with it. Secondly, we're about choice. Now, we've got a $1.7 billion program to help 
households and businesses electrify and to convert to renewable energy. Uh, but we feel that's the better approach. Providing that sort of assistance and incentive to people is a much better approach, in our view, uh, than some sort of nationally mandated uh, effort uh, to uh, abolish gas from homes. I want to talk about the climate change conference that opens today. The biggest debate there is going to be over the push for a global agreement on phasing out oil and gas mid-century. Would Australia, will Australia sign up to such an agreement? We certainly support a strengthening of global action, absolutely, and I'll be very actively engaged in those let's, conversations. Let, this time, let's just stick with the question. Will Australia support what is going to be a debate at COP to reach an agreement on phasing out coal and gas that, mid-century oil and gas? That is well, that is the question uh, with respect, Sarah, is how do we strengthen the world's efforts? And I'll be supporting on behalf of Australia sensible steps, unlike previous arrangement where Australia was in bad company. I'll be in very good company arguing for a strengthening of the language. Now, I chair the umbrella group of climate change ministers, so um, I'll be working with my colleagues. So the only call so far from the COP president has been to triple renewable energy investment and double energy efficiency. I support that. I'll be supporting that at the negotiation table. Um, we need to see what we're asked to sign up for, but Australia will be right in there in a leadership role, uh, arguing for stronger mitigation around the world, which is a big change to how we behave for the last nine years. What are you going to say to the, what's called the high ambition coalition countries who are driving this agenda when they ask you why Australia is still approving extended coal mines and new gas projects? Look, when I'm involved in international conversations, Sarah, it takes a quite different tone uh, to the one that you've just put to me. There's respect for the role Australia brings as, yes, a traditional fossil fuel economy. Yes, we are. And we need traditional fossil fuel economies as part of the conversation. I mean, we are the very type of economy we need making the transition. I don't doubt that this is a, a respectful engagement, but you know what happens at COP. It gets more and more tense as the days go on. That question is going to be put to you at some point, what Australia's plans are with regards to its fossil fuel projects. And Australia's plans are to become a renewable energy superpower, Sarah, and to help the world decarbonise through green hydrogen and renewable energy. And there's huge interest. I mean, um, there's huge interest in Australia's transition. We have plenty of land, of renewable energy, of skills. Uh, other countries don't have that. We can actually help the world decarbonise. Our domestic emissions are very important. Even more important is how we can help other countries decarbonise by developing our green hydrogen industry through our Hydrogen Head Start $2 billion policy, for example, our hydrogen hubs, which I've been announcing over recent weeks, for example, um, to develop that export capacity, which actually helps the world yes, decarbonise. That's before we even get to our critical minerals, which are also essential to the world's decarbonisation But, but you, you know as well as anybody listening to this conversation that we still have to be cutting emissions. We've got, I think, 16 new projects last time I looked that had reached final financial decisions. This conversation is going to come up at yeah. the conference about again, those decisions that Australia is making yeah. with regards to new gas and extended coal projects. And again, Sarah, my international colleagues understand the complexities of such discussions. They understand, for example, that green steel is coming 
but it's not here yet. So we still need metallurgical coal. I mean, and we need a lot more. We need a lot more steel as part of the transition, you know, because the transition will require a lot of steel. That will, as we speak, require a lot of coal. That's just a statement of fact, metallurgical coal. And um, the world, my world counterparts all understand that. And they know that Australia produces that metallurgical coal. There's been a lot of discussion about the role of the head of the conference, Sultan Al-Jaber, uh, particularly his push to prioritise carbon capture and other abatement measures ahead of emissions cuts. Does that undermine his legitimacy? Well, Sarah, I can only speak for my interactions with him, uh, which have been very extensive. Uh, he's the incoming COP president, but he has been uh, very active uh, and I've met with him on multiple occasions and we communicate with each other very regularly and sometimes daily uh, on the telephone in the lead up to the COP uh, conference. And uh, I've found him engaging, uh, open and very keen for a good and positive outcome at this COP. Now, whether he'll get one or not, uh, we'll see next week uh, because this COP is being held in a very tense and complicated geopolitical environment, which makes his job harder. Um, but he has been very keen for strong progress on mitigation, strong progress on loss and damage, strong progress on global uh, climate finance, strong progress on the global stocktake and adaptation. These are all key matters before the COP next week. There's a lot of moving parts to these COP negotiations. And he's been working not only with me, but obviously I talk to my global counterparts, you know, the Canadian minister, the UK minister, we all compare notes and everybody uh, has the same uh, experience that he's been engaged and forthright and open and wanting a good result. I'm just going to ask you one more thing. He said in October that the world does need to prepare for the inevitable phase down of fossil fuels. He used the word inevitable. You said you talk to him sometimes daily. Did you, have you ever asked him what inevitable means? Well, I think it means pretty self-evidently that the but, direction of travel of the world when? is very clear. But when? Because the question well, is about well, when. Well, to be fair to him and to everyone, we're about to go into an international negotiation where different people will have different perspectives and we need to go in with a, with a flexible approach to get a very strong outcome. You know, the last COP was very difficult, Sarah, to be very frank with you. We were fighting, me and like-minded ministers, fighting just to hold the line to defend what was agreed at Glasgow. Now, um, that was in a very difficult environment. We want to defend what was agreed at Glasgow this time and take it forward and see a strengthening of the global efforts. I'll be part of the conversation. The key thing is to work with other ministers who have the same objective, and there's a big number of them around the world that I'll be working closely with. And as I said, the COP president has been coming at it, in my experience, in my interactions with him, uh, with the same objective. Chris Bowen, we wish, you, uh, we wish you luck for what lies ahead. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Great pleasure, Sarah. Good on you. I fear the Minister is speaking out of both sides of his mouth, but you'll find the link for the 7.30 report in the show notes so you can watch that and make up your own mind. Finally, we have a piece from The Conversation written by the Director of the Melbourne Climate Futures at the University of Melbourne, written by Jack Roland Peel. The headline of the story is COP28. How will Australia navigate domestic climate winds and fossil fuel exports at the negotiating table? The story begins. As the COP28 climate summit gets underway in the oil production hub of the United Arab Emirates today, Australia's climate minister, Chris Bowen, will detail our progress in meeting emissions cut targets and updated predictions. The second annual climate change statement will be tabled in Parliament at noon, but already we know that some of the detail, 
Australia is now likely to cut its emissions 42% below, below 2005 levels by 2030, very close to the legislated 43% target the government introduced last year. This is likely to give Bowen a spring in his step when combined with last week's funding announcement of renewables and storage. From the strengthened platform, he will argue Australia can be trusted to meet its climate goals. Well, we've reached the end of this episode of Climate Conversations. Thanks so much for your company. It's been great to have you along. Now, I'd love you to follow this podcast because if you do that, you'll be alerted every time I publish a new episode. Also, I'd love you to share this. In fact, I almost demand that you share this with your friends or on your network because we all need to know all we possibly can about the climate crisis. Also, it's important for me to know how you feel about this podcast, so please let me know and you can contact me via email at number 7 at icloud.com. Don't hold back, good or bad, please let me know. So, until we talk again, please take care, stay safe, and please be kind. For everyone you meet is fighting a great battle. Now, please don't forget to check out the show notes because I'll have some extra links in there, and you really need to look at them. So, until we talk again, take care, stay safe, and be kind.